Aloha. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Now, since the year 2000, the percentage of people in the islands who have diabetes has more than doubled, 4.6 to 9.7 for 2014. What's the latest in diabetes care? Is it all about sugar? Or is there something else going on that makes those with diabetes have a higher risk of heart attacks and strokes? Well, today we're going to find out. Dr. Cindy Powell is in the studio. She's returning home from spending some time at Harvard and is leading the charge with exploring our island's unique issues with diabetes, making sure that we can be a part of the nationwide research community as well. Now, before we get started, I want to mention talking about medical events. You know, it's it's wonderful that we're going to be talking about diabetes and talking about prevention and treatment and new research models. There's another medical problem that often goes along with diabetes. If people who have diabetes are not doing as much activity, exercise, have a little bit of troubles with their weight, arthritis becomes an issue. And there's a free community health event coming up this Saturday. Al Moana Hotel, Hawaii Pacific Health, is putting on this event with program chair Cass Nakasone and also some wonderful, wonderful speakers. What's new in hip and knee replacement? Radiofrequency ablation treatment for knee pain. Supplements. Have you heard of the latest in glucosamine, chondroitin, MSM, bioastin, things like that? Um, Ultrasound-guided treatments for joint pain. I got to tell you, I want to be at this event because there's a lot that I, as a clinician, can learn about what's going on in the field of orthopedics. Now, you want to be part of this event I confirmed today, there is still space. It is coming up this April 2nd. And if you want to be part of it, you can register online, hawaiipacifichealth.org, or you can give a call to my friend at Conference Services, and you can reach them at 808-522-3469. Now, there will be a video conference available at Polymomi Medical Center, and so you'll have an opportunity, if you're on that side of the island, to watch it there as well. But I've got to tell you, every year this event gets put on. It's wonderful, extremely educational, and some of the orthopedic docs that take months to get in to see in the office, you will see in person at this event, and they'll be able to answer your questions right then and there. It's pretty amazing. So, you know... We're just going to have to do that event with diabetes, Dr. Powell. I'm going to put you in uh, in the hot seat and say, you know, we're going to talk about the time when you do the conference on diabetes that is not planned yet, but <laughs> I'm going to plant a seed. Now, as always, when we talk with Dr. Cindy Powell, you are part of that conversation, and you can join us at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. First, let's get to know Dr. Powell. Now, Dr. Powell... You have spent some time here, and you have been in the medical school right here. Is that right? Yes. So you were at John Burns. Yes, I was at John Burns, and thank you for having me on the show. Oh, thanks for coming and letting me poke around at your knowledge base. <laughs> so, And then you went off, and you did some training at Massachusetts General. Yes. Okay. So I spent um, eight years, uh, almost eight years there, doing my residency in internal medicine. You probably then- got very cold. <laughs> Well, I'm happy to be back and not missing the snow so much, especially when it's negative 30. Oh, my God. Can you imagine? (laughs) Wow. That's just crazy. Yeah. But I was at Mass General at Harvard for um, almost eight years doing my residency in internal medicine, then my endocrinology fellowship, which was a mixture of both clinical and research. And that's kind of unusual. A lot of times people will do either or. But in your case, you had an opportunity to do both. Right. 
the research component is one of the things that you're bringing back here to the islands, which is something that a lot of times, you know, we are so far removed from some other locations that things that are going on in the East Coast, even sometimes things in the West Coast, we don't have as easily accessible ability to participate in. So you're kind of coming to change all that. Yes, I hope so. (laughs) I'm really putting you in the hot seat for a couple of things. All right. But truthfully, it's definitely a needed service here in the islands. So let's talk a little bit about diabetes because I want to really start with some of the basics. So when people talk diabetes, what is what is the definition of diabetes? If I was just a random person Mm -hmm. coming in to ask you, not not a colleague and say, what's diabetes? How would you describe it? So Diabetes is basically an umbrella term talking about a group of diseases that affects how your body uses sugar or glucose. And glucose is very important. It's, it's important because it's a source of fuel for sure. our organs. We need it. Yes. And uh, in your brain, in fact, relies almost purely on um, glucose. It's, it's the preferred energy source. So we need glucose. But when it's too high, when your body doesn't utilize sugar or glucose, efficiently, for whatever reason, then you have high sugar in your bloodstream, and that is diabetes. So something happens, your metabolism is not, either you're eating way too much sugar, or you're not metabolizing sugar the way you need to. And when it hangs out in the bloodstream, that's what we measure in the blood. That's when a certain level we call it diabetes. That's correct. And it's not so good to have it just hanging out in the blood. It does bad stuff. Right. So normally, when you eat, There is a hormone that is secreted by your pancreas. It's an organ that sits behind your stomach, and it secretes insulin to help you to metabolize your sugar, to put the sugar into your organ where it can be used as energy. However, in diabetes, depending on the type of diabetes, you could either lose the ability to produce insulin, or your body does not respond to insulin. And People might hear about type 1 versus type 2 diabetes or childhood versus adult onset. But through research, we're getting to know that there's more types of diabetes. There's actually many types, maybe even 20 types of diabetes of all sorts. And and um, all of them affect how your body metabolizes glucose or produces insulin or responds to insulin. So to answer your question about having is is having too much sugar in your in your bloodstream bad? Yes. So a lot of things happen when you have high glucose in your bloodstream. It forms one of the things that it does is it, it the sugar attaches to proteins and blood, and when it does that, it actually essentially becomes kind of sticky. So when it travels through the bloodstream, especially when it's traveling through small bloodstreams, small blood vessels, it cross-links or sticks to collagen. Collagen is the, the, the wall of the bloodstream, and it gets essentially stuck there, and it causes inflammation, and it increases clotting factors to the area, makes the blood vessel leaky, and damages the blood vessel. So it's really not a coincidence that the 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 features or the the parts of your body that are affected initially when you have diabetes are your eyes, your nerves, your kidneys. These are the organs where there's very small blood vessels going to these organs. And these sticky proteins, sticky blood, I'm I'm simplifying, of course, but uh, 
they cause inflammation, damage, gets stuck there, stuck to the walls, and, and causes damage to these areas. And so you get eye damage, kidney damage, um, nerve damage. So that's some of the first things that happen. Of course, this takes years to occur. And later on, it can affect the larger blood vessels. So the heart, for example, causing heart attacks. In the brain, it can cause strokes. So when we talk about having this extra blood sugar in your bloodstream, it's there, however, whatever the reason is that it's there. Either you don't make any insulin, your body doesn't respond to insulin, you ate like five cakes all at once, whatever the reason. There's sugar in your bloodstream. And when there's too much sugar, that makes the blood sticky and it damages blood vessels. And Mm -hmm. tiny blood vessels get affected first because they're small. Right. So we talk about the eyes, and you mentioned the kidneys, and we mentioned the nerves. And so some of those early sorts of areas are why some folks say, hey, my vision's been blurry. Right. Hey, I've been feeling tingling of my hands or feet. Mm-hmm. You know, most people may not realize a kidney problem because they still pee, so they don't really think that their kidneys are having a problem. Um, but that's why it's important to diagnose it and get it tested and figure it out early, mm-hmm. because if you figure it out late, you've already had some of these these areas of damage occur. now, And it's not always reversible. That's correct. It's not always reversible. So sometimes in some patients who are obese, for example, if they lose a lot of weight, then sometimes obese, the um, diabetes can be reversed. Uh, but that's only if you maintain that weight and maintain a good lifestyle. Um, but it's not always, and often it's not reversible. So let's talk about the different types of diabetes. You said there's like 20. Is one of those types of diabetes associated with people who have it purely because of weight? So so some patients who, yes, the answer is yes. There are some patients who, because of having extra uh, fat cells on board, makes them very insulin resistant. And what that means is your body produces insulin. Insulin is something your body naturally makes, but you don't respond to it anymore. The more fat you have, the actually more inflammation that you have, and then you have less responsiveness to insulin. And so it's harder for your insulin to process the sugar that you eat. It makes it harder to do its job. Absolutely. And that's why the only time that I've ever heard people describe a cure of diabetes in the medical literature has been in people who have had some type of dramatic weight loss, particularly gastric bypass surgery. So yes. one of the new criteria that actually will allow certain insurance companies that will allow that will make them pay for your gastric surgery mm-hmm. is if you have diabetes because we now have enough medical evidence to say you can you can cure it if you can keep the weight off change your lifestyle, which is inevitable when you've had this shrinkage of your stomach, that you can actually eliminate diabetes in that population. That's correct. But it can come back if you gain the weight back. Sure. If if you don't keep up that lifestyle change, you already have this tendency in your body for whatever's going on metabolically to have this sugar buildup in your bloodstream, and that can cause you to have troubles again. I'm just totally curious, what are some of the other types of diabetes? You said there's, you know, we hear type 1 and type 2, and we hear various things about that, you know, childhood diabetes. What are some of the other kinds? Would, like, gestational diabetes fit into that category? Absolutely. The type you get only when you're pregnant? Yes, so gestational diabetes would certainly be one of those diabetes. And in in gestational diabetes in particular, so when you have the placenta in your body, the placenta actually releases a hormone that makes you very resistant to insulin. And so that's why some women who also have some genetic risk factors and maybe some 
weight or lifestyle factors that increases the risk of diabetes. Add on a placenta that makes a hormone that makes you resistant to insulin, and you get gestational diabetes. And so that's another type of diabetes. Absolutely. And if you get gestational diabetes, you have, I think, the latest I've heard is a 50% chance of getting diabetes later in life when you're not pregnant anymore. That's correct. If you have had gestational diabetes, you are at significantly increased risk, so twice the likelihood of having diabetes later on in life. So you talked about early, getting a diagnosis of of diabetes early, and that's key because when we check something like a fasting morning before you eat blood sugar, if that's elevated, something's already wrong. That means that Either your pancreas is already not producing insulin or it's producing insulin but not enough so that your body is unable to use the insulin that's there to, to process the sugar that is being either produced or, um, or you're eating it. So it is key in gestational diabetes or um, in disease conditions that places you at higher risk for diabetes, so in obesity in women with polycystic ovary syndrome, um, in patients who have a strong family history of diabetes, for example, in patients who've had gestational diabetes, and certain types of other endocrine conditions, it's, it's important to get early screening. And you can do tests, for example, an oral glucose tolerance test, which gives you a glucose challenge. We give you a glucose load and see how you respond to it. Because before you get high sugar, even when you're not eating anything overnight, your ability to process the sugar when you're eating it can already look impaired, and that can help us to detect diabetes earlier. That just makes me want to go run around the block and, like, burn off some sugar. Let's go. Like, right now. <laughs> well, we've got about another 46 minutes to go. Okay. But then we'll go run around the block. So so diabetes is this huge, all-encompassing metabolic shift that occurs in your body for whatever reason. And then from there, you have this increased risk of having the heart attacks, the strokes we talked about, blood vessel damage, the kidney problems, the eye problems. There really isn't one organ that doesn't get affected Mm -hmm. by having this elevated sugar. So if somebody has never had their blood sugar checked, I think the current CDC guidelines are, are, and I know mainly for adults, so so this may not apply to the children population because I'm not as up to date on that. So. I know for adults, if you're over 18, you should have a fasting blood sugar done at least once. Mm-hmm. If the levels are high, be monitored periodically. Same thing with fasting cholesterol that we used to say, oh, just check it when you're in your 30s or 40s. And now it's like, listen, you're 18. If you haven't done it, check it so we can figure it out. Plus, if you have certain risk factors, and you talked a little bit about those family history, um, secondary risk factors, weight issues, pregnancy, et cetera, there's mm-hmm. certain times when those things should be checked. If somebody checks a blood sugar at 18 or 20 or so and it's normal, when should they do it again? So that's a great question. I mean, so the the ADA actually recommends doing it at age 25 and checking at least a screening sugar, either by checking the A1C, which is the three-month measurement of how sticky essentially your, your blood is. Your red blood cell lives about 120 days, so we use the A1C as a three to four month measure of how much sugar is attached to your red blood cell. So we can look at the A1C or we can look at the fasting blood sugar. But if they have risk factors for diabetes, they should probably get an oral glucose challenge. 
Okay. And the oral glucose challenges where you do a sugar, then you get a sugar load. It's probably a solution that you have to drink. They check your sugar again. Mm -hmm. And then an hour or so after that, kind of see how your body metabolizes that sugar. So let's talk a little bit about the A1C. What I tell what I tell people about A1C is, you know, like you mentioned, your your body's red blood cells live like three to four months, and then mm-hmm. that's it. Mm-hmm. You make new ones every day. If you don't, there's big trouble. So luckily <laughs> you do. And depending on what your blood sugar is, a certain percentage of that red blood cell is going to be covered in sugar. Mm-hmm. And what we measure is that percent. That's so cool. it's not like, you know, I saw somebody earlier today who said, yeah, my percent is high because last night before I did my blood test, I had some cake and I went, well, you know what? That probably wasn't a good plan, but it's a three-month average that -hmm. we're looking at. This percentage is looking at the highs and the lows. And so if you had cake four months ago, that may not show up in my three- to four-month A1C, but cake last night, it's probably not going to be the only reason why you have troubles because this number is going to reflect the last couple of months of of your dietary intake. That's right. When somebody has an elevated A1C, let's go over some of the numbers because, you know, back in 2009, the diagnosis of diabetes was based on a fasting blood sugar mm-hmm. above 126, and they shifted it at the end of that year. And I don't know why I remember it. December 29th, 2009. <laughs> I don't know why that's in my head. But that's when they decided to change the definition of diabetes and say, you know what, now it's based on an A1C percent because that's more accurate. Because, again, it gives you more data. It's not just fasting since last night. It's the last three months of your blood sugar. And so with that became a new definition of diabetes. So at that point onwards, the percent A1C for diabetes was 6.5% or higher. Mm -hmm. And they developed a category called borderline, which we had kind of known about before, Mm -hmm. but they now put it in writing. Tell me about normal and what is this borderline category? Mm -hmm. Because it seems to vary with different clinicians. Mm -hmm. But the definition is pretty basic and strict. So what's a normal A1C percent? Normal is less than 5.7. So 5.7% of your red blood cell is allowed to have a little bit of sugar on it because you have sugar in your bloodstream because you need sugar in your bloodstream. So 5.7 less than, not equal to. Okay. Yes. So less than 5.7, you're normal. So 5.7 to... Let's just say 6.0. Mm-hmm. Pre-diabetes? Well, that's more... So pre-diabetes is technically 6.0 to 6.5. Okay. But when we say it's um, 5.7 to 6.0, we're talking borderline. Okay. Um, and so... It's, so that's like a risk category. Right, at Get risk it together. Category. Join us. We're going to run around the block. Right. After the show <laughs> in fear. But then you get to the 6.0 to 6.45%. Hey, you know what? You're pre-diabetes now. That's correct. So we've delineated between normal, borderline, pre-diabetes, and diabetes. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so when you do these measurements, let's talk a little bit about the A1C. You have to do it fasting or no? So the A1C does not have to be fasting. And you can do it in the lab or in your office, or how could you do that test? So there's different ways that we can test it. We can do it by a traditional uh, blood draw through your through your arm, but you can also get a finger stick that tests the capillary um, blood sugars, and so that that varies just a little bit slightly too. 
the the regular blood draw, but they're pretty comparable. Pretty comparable. I've actually had people do, for whatever reason, they did them both the same day, and they were spot on. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, one of them was by accident. They did it, and we didn't realize it. But, boy, it was it was nice to do that trial and yeah. say, hey, is it the same? All right, we are learning all about diabetes today. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Cindy Pow. She is a diabetes expert. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about medication for diabetes. What do some of the medicines do? And what are some of the new ones that we hear about that are up and coming? How do they help the body to maintain a normal sugar or to achieve that balance? Now, as always, our show is your show. So if you have diabetes, if you have questions about your medications, If you have questions about research trials, hey, we're going to be talking about all of it, but you can join us at any time at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to the St. Andrews Schools, which includes the Priory School for Girls, the Prep for Boys, and Queen Emma Preschool. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Colleen Morrow, author of Spiritual Telepathy, Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about ancient techniques that will help you access the wisdom and guidance of your own soul. Sunday morning at 11. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributor Oceanside Hawaii Assisted Living and Memory Care. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Cindy Powell. She's a diabetes expert. She has gone to Japsom here and then off to Massachusetts General, learning and and perfecting her craft out of all places, Harvard Medical Center, and then coming back here to the islands to bring her excellent education and all that she's learned back here so that the rest of us can learn from her and can also have a connection now to some of the amazing research trials that are being done in the field of diabetes. Now, before the break, we were talking about what is an A1C. And now that we've established that an A1C is a way that we measure and and monitor diabetes, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the medications that we use. So before we do that, Cindy, a good A1C. Let's just say you're diabetic. What is a good A1C? Where do you want to be? So it really depends on how long you've had diabetes, okay. what complications you have, and those are the the main two factors that help us to determine what your A1C should be. So if you're young or you've recently had di- been diagnosed with diabetes and you don't really have any complications, we really want to prevent those complications. And in order to prevent those complications, we want your A1C to be as close to normal as possible. But if we try to get it, down to normal, less than 5.7%, that might come at a risk of possibly inducing too many low blood sugar events. So we say less than 7%, and as long as it's less than 7%, without having any significant amount of low blood sugars, then that is the goal. Okay. Uh, But if you already have complications of diabetes, you've had heart attacks before, you've had strokes, you already have kidney damage, you already have blindness from diabetes, 
uh, then the we, we're not so strict because we're not trying to prevent all those complications, but we definitely want to prevent any new complications or worsening of the current complications. So we're a little bit more liberal, and it depends on on the degree of the complications, but generally we say somewhere between 7 and 8%. But we try not to let patients be higher than 8% very So frequently. if you're above 8 that's bad news. Not In good. In most circumstances, not <laughs> yeah. good. You were very politically correct on that. I call it bad news. You say not good <laughs> news. That is true. And uh, and that's definitely the case. So we want to get your sugars lower because you have lower chances of complications. But if you start to have problems with those low sugar feelings, we don't want to give you so much medication that you wind up having to eat to counteract mm-hmm. the medicine and make yourself that's miserable true. and all these sorts of things. All right. We've got a couple of callers before we start talking specifics on medication. We have done calling from downtown. Don, welcome to The Body Show. Oh, hi, Kathy. Hello, um, my friend. Hey, um, I know, you know, too much glucose circulating in the bloodstream damages blood vessels, but what about too much fructose, you know, like in fruit juices and stuff? Interesting question. Does the body metabolize fructose and glucose the same? And if so, what does it do to your bloodstream? I'm curious, Dr. Powell. What do you think? So pretty similarly, it's... um. Having too much fructose essentially is the same as glucose, and so um, it's going to be pretty similar. Would we call them both oligopolysaccharides? <laughs> essentially. Okay, yes. so glucose, fructose, it's sugar done, it's sugar in your bloodstream, it's probably not a good plan mm-hmm. if your body can't handle it. Now, some people can handle as much sugar as you throw at their body. Their pancreas works great, they're not insulin resistant, they, you give them a high glucose or fructose load, they're fabulous. And some people, they're not. So how much fructose or glucose can you eat per day, like grams or grams per uh, pound of body weight? Is there any off the limit? Well, I'm, I'm not so sure about the fructose. I'm not sure if that's been studied, but I, I'm just not as familiar with that. But certainly, if you, we couldn't check an A1C on you, we could check something even called a fructosamine, which is albumin, and it's um, a sugar, the sugar on the albumin protein. But uh, in terms of carbohydrates for patients with diabetes, we recommend between 45 grams to 60 grams of carbohydrates per meal, and then about 15 to 30 grams of um, carbohydrates for the snacks. So there is a set amount in a day, somewhere ranging 100, 150 or so. But it's 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 such an individual thing because if you're out there running and exercising and doing marathons, mm-hmm. you're burning a lot of that Absolutely. sugar. You may need more to sustain yourself. Mm-hmm. If you're sitting on the couch watching TV, you're not burning as much sugar. Mm-hmm. So you might be in the lower end of that recommendation. Yes. And I wouldn't think of it as a daily requirement or a daily allowance because you really want to think about it as if you have diabetes – your body is not either responding to insulin well or you're not making enough insulin. So however you process the sugar, it's not going to be as efficient as if all your organs were operating efficiently and optimally. So you really want to give your body a load of sugar, whatever source that is, in an amount that it can handle each time. So if you overwhelm your body with a large load of sugar, you, you're allowed you know, that, that then you're going to really overwhelm your system and your body just can't process it. Then you'll have high sugars and it'll be high for the rest of the day. So it's not like have it all at once. Right. You've really got to partition it out. Yes. You know, I give people an analogy that some folks might get grossed out about, but I'll share it anyway. It's like when my hair clogs the drain. 
don't turn on the water full force or that sink is filling up. Turn it on a little trickle and it'll probably go down and you don't have to worry. Now, obviously, I know, clean the drain. I get that. And I have, I swear. (laughs) But the idea is that if you have a rate limiting step, if your body can't handle a certain amount of sugar and you have your daily allowance all at once, bad news Mm -hmm. because you kind of want to split it up throughout the day. Just let a trickle come down a little bit at a time because your body can handle that. That's correct. And yes, I clean my drain. <laughs> but it's a gross analogy, but it makes sense, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. I would think so. You can use it, too. All right. We have Julia on the line from Honolulu. Julia, welcome to The Body Show. Hello, Julia. Yes. Hello. Hello. You're on live on air. Hi. Welcome to The Body Show. Hi. I just had a question. I was recently diagnosed with diabetes, um, and I was wondering, instead of going the pharmaceutical route, are there any other treatments such as herbal supplements or homeopathic um, treatments that are available that could help? So depending on how high your A1C is, so if you're starting with an A1C of sometimes I'll see an A1C of 15 or 16, that's a really, really, really high A1C level. And so despite your best lifestyle modifications, it Main, it's not going to be able to bring you back down to a, a, a close to normal blood sugar level. But if mm-hmm. it's just slightly elevated and you have mild diabetes, we always should, providers should recommend a trial of lifestyle modification first. And what that means is to modify the risk factors that put you at risk for diabetes in the first place. So if your weight is higher than it should be, then to lose weight. And if what you're eating is a lot of carbohydrates, then to reduce that and to um, try to reduce basically how much carbs you eat to right. modify. Yeah. Okay. So, Julia, okay, I'm no, curious. I'm Let's sorry. pretend you're talking about your friend and not yourself. What was <laughs> your friend's A1C? Oh, <laughs> Um, it was 6.7. Okay, so that's like yeah. really early. That's yeah. darn good. Yeah. That's not so scary. So, you know, lifestyle stuff you really could do. Yo, I'm sorry, your friend really could do <laughs> without having any problems. And you might really be able to fix that. Pre- I, I would think, Dr. Powell, that would actually be, I don't want to say pretty easy because, you know, nothing is easy. But, you know, it's not as bad as if the numbers were scary high. Absolutely. Right. So, yes, so... If you modify, if your friend uh, modify her lifestyle, then you there's a good chance that you could bring your sugar back down to sure. close to normal. I mean, we're you know we're still talking about trying to get back down to below five point seven percent, so it right. is a lot farther to go than going below six point five percent at the time when that you know six point five percent is the cutoff for the diabetes diagnosis. But I've seen patients absolutely cure or at least um, control their diabetes very, very well without any medications. Even okay, without so herbal supplements, you could do this lifestyle-wise. All right, that's right. Correct. So it's awesome. basically diet and exercise, mm-hmm. and you wouldn't recommend doing the herbal supplement route or the homeopathic route. Because I've heard of different medications or herbal supplements that you could take to kind of mm-hmm. control the sugar levels, like mm-hmm. alpha-lipoic acid, um, and other things. And I was just wondering if you heard anything about that or know anything about that. So we don't typically um, recommend the the herbal supplements to our patients just because it's less studied uh, from a scientific standpoint. But, um, of course, if you read something and uh, there is no 
clearer sense of harm, then I'm always a fan of trying it and um, and trying to see if it could work. Sure, I'll tell you what I do, uh, Julia, is that, you know, first off, if the idea is to lower your blood sugar, don't put as much in there. And then that's obviously going to lower your blood sugar. But for those folks I have who really want to try some type of herbal or homeopathic or naturopathic uh, type of, of solution, you know, I've heard about cinnamon, I've heard about, you know, apple cider vinegar, which anything that says vinegar just makes my mouth want to pucker. But anyway, the thing is that if you if you work on your lifestyle and you say, okay, I've got myself down from 6.7 to 6.5, and that's as best as I can do, and you want to try one of these different types of supplements, go for it. And then come in in three months and check your numbers again and be scientific about it so that if you're going to use a supplement, do one at a time. Don't mix five because then you don't know which one is working. And then when you come in to get your three-month check, assess to see, hey, did I go from 6.5? 6.5 down to 6.0, then that's actually helped me. If I went from 6.5 to 6.6, that's the wrong direction. So don't use that one again. So that there is a way if you have mild cases of diabetes that you could do sort of a do no harm scientific approach to some of these types of types of uh, supplements. But you got to be really careful and you have to check with your doctor because sometimes some of the supplements might affect other medicines you're on, particularly if you're on heart medications or if you're on blood thinners. So you, it's kind of, you got to walk that fine line and make sure you talk with somebody who really can help you gauge whether or not there's a risk or not and help monitor you really carefully. But you know, the first thing is anything that'll lower your blood sugar, you too can lower your blood sugar by not eating things with a lot of sugar. Mm-hmm. So that would be step one is work on that first, because that's that's an easy way for you to take control of managing your diabetes. So kudos to you, Julia, and your and your friend for sharing their A1C with us live on air. And uh, all right. We have another caller. We've got Ryan on the line from Kaimo Key. Ryan, welcome to the body show. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. All right. What can we do for you today? I had a question regarding. I overheard on your program just now that we can either, I guess, ingest or take in glucose or our body makes it. That's right. Yes, you got it, Ryan. You are listening in. So, Dr. Powell, explain this mystery because sometimes people think, if I don't eat the sugar, my sugar will never be high. But they forget that there's this sneaky little organ that we need called the liver, Mm -hmm. and the liver makes sugar. That's right. So the sources of sugar in our body comes primarily from two sources. One is our food and the other is our liver. So when you eat sugar, your liver actually stores the sugar in the liver. And when you're sleeping and you're not eating for 8, 12, maybe even more hours, you're not eating anything. So something needs to maintain your sugar level to be at least a, a, a normal level. And that's your liver. Your liver will release and break down the, that stored sugar and release that into the bloodstream. Unfortunately, in diabetes, something happens and the liver does that by, so it, it overproduces and oversecretes that sugar back into the bloodstream in an unregulated fashion such that it's contributing to the high blood sugar, even if that part is not something that you're actively doing. It's just it's just it's not it's your happening fault. in your body. Your <laughs> liver is doing it, man. Exactly. It's not your fault, but it's still happening. We got to fix it. Ryan, did you have a question about that? Yeah, I wanted to know then, is what's causing the liver to do such... Uh, what's with the crazy production? liver? Exactly. And more importantly, what can we do to stop it? Mm-hmm. So, you know, Dr. Powell, 
why is the liver going crazy? And how can I stop my liver from going crazy? So that's a little bit of a harder one to fix, for sure. Um, but the the liver then becomes res- more responsive to a hormone called glucagon, and it will just release the sugar. But when you lose weight and when your overall sugar levels are lower and when it is lower for um, a longer period of time, sometimes your liver can readapt and fix itself so that you're producing less liver sugar. But that that. So like exercise, diet, Mm -hmm. don't eat sugar. If you have less in your bloodstream, then when you add the liver sugar and your diet sugar, it'll be a lower total amount. Yes. All right. It's a hard one, Ryan. It's a hard one. And certain medications target that extra liver sugar. So uh, when we look at your sugar profile, we try to see if if your sugar in in the fasting state in the morning when you first wake up is really high, and you started off at nighttime when you went to bed at a sugar level that is more reasonable and your sugar level in the morning is much higher, we know that there is more of that liver contribution to the sugar. Which kind of explains something that a lot of people will ask me is, you know, I checked my sugar at night and then I got up the next morning and it was like 150. And when I went to bed, it was 100. How did I get 50 more points of sugar? Because we often associate the dietary intake with the increase in the blood sugar. But the liver is a little sneaky kind of deal there. A little sneaky, yes. So there are two things that can cause the liver overnight to increase um, the, the amount of sugar secretion. One thing is is um, called a Dawn's phenomenon, and what that is is when you're getting up and ready to start the day, your body's hormones, the stress hormones, the hormones that control fight or flight, it's saying get up and fight, fight your get day, up. get fight up your and day. fight for your fight day. Sleeping, you've so, got to fight traffic. Exactly. Yep. In Honolulu, yes. <laughs> oh, yes, you do. That is so, a fight. Get out there early. Okay? Uh, yes. So that early, that cortisol, that stress the hormone. Cortisol, glucagon, all these stress hormones are rising, and it's stimulating your liver to produce more sugar, probably in anticipation of of starting your day and having a fuel source, but sometimes it just overdoes it in diabetes. So this dawn phenomenon actually happens in normal people too, that meaning don't have diabetes. So if you have diabetes, don't have diabetes, your your stress hormones rise in the early morning and cause your sugars to be a little higher. That's normal. And then in diabetes treatment, sometimes you also overtreat a high blood sugar at nighttime and you can actually make your sugar get too low overnight, but you might not even be aware of it. And your body responds by kicking in those stress hormones saying, uh-oh, something's wrong. My sugar's We've really low. We've got to eat or the liver's got to do it. Yeah. So, so the it, liver does well, it. Yeah, it'll, it will be a rebound or response to low blood sugars. Gotcha. All right. We are learning tons about diabetes. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Cindy Powell, and we are talking about diabetes. When we come back, we're going to get to some of the some of the medications that are out there, how they work, and then also what are the latest things being done in the research world? You know, a couple of years ago, inhaled insulin never took off, but it's back. And there's other treatments that are out there that really help to lower the blood sugar in your body. So we'll talk some more about that in just a few minutes. You can join us at any time, 941-3689. Toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Family violence, trauma, and neglect are tough to confront in a family. 
Yet if they go untreated, the abuse can bring serious long-term effects. Next on The Conversation, we'll talk with the visiting head of the Institute on Violence, Abuse, and Trauma in Hawaii for the 13th Annual Hawaii Summit. Join us tomorrow morning at 8 on The Conversation. New research shows having colleagues who work from home can have negative effects on the folks who do come to the office every day. So you had people who would come to the office and literally none of their coworkers would be there, either because they were out and about or they were working in other locations or they were choosing to work from home. I'm Sarah McConnell. Join me for With Good Reason, Thursdays at 6.30 on Hawaii Public Radio. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Whole Foods Market Hawaii, Ulupono Initiative, and Hawaii Pacific University. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here with Dr. Cindy Powell, and we are talking all things diabetes today. Now, before the break, we were talking about the sneaky liver. The liver makes some sugar, too. Um, but, you know, when we talk about diabetes, we have to talk about different medications. And part of the reason why we have more medications out there is because over the last 10 years or so, probably longer than that, there have been a lot of research trials that are being done trying to develop different mechanisms to take care of diabetes. So, you know, in addition to just trying to lower the blood sugar in your blood, there's medicines that try and make your your liver produce less sugar. There's medicines that try and make your organs more receptive to the, the insulin and the sugar in your body. There's all different types of new things. New medicines make you pee out sugar even. And part of what has really happened is we've learned about these medicines through clinical trials. And that's one of the things that, Dr. Powell, you have a particular expertise in, is that you're bringing some of the clinical trials that are currently going on right now and that haven't been here yet and trying to help develop novel mechanisms to treat diabetes. You know, the way I tell people is if you were to take a, a picture of, of a house and just look at the one picture of the front of the house. That doesn't tell you what the sides or the back or the bedrooms look like or all the different various aspects of the house. The best way to take a look at it is to take a look at the whole thing. When we look at diabetes, the best way to treat it is to treat it from a whole bunch of different angles so that you can really get at the core problem with the sugar by trying a bunch of stuff, doing the lifestyle, doing the exercise, doing the medication, doing all those things together. So Clinical trials are extremely important and are a way that we can help science to move forward and how we got to where we are right now. There are clinical trials going on right now with diabetes. Is that right? Yes. There's clinical trials going on right here in Hawaii, in fact. Right here in Hawaii. That's right. So um, I had the privilege of joining Dr. David Fitzpatrick, who uh, is the medical director at the East-West Medical Research Institute. And he's been doing trials for a while. Yeah. And... Uh, you know, we cannot advance the field of medicine or the treatment of diabetes without medical research. And diabetes in particular is one of the fastest growing field of research. And we've had now in the past 10 years so many new medications, more options to treat diabetes more than ever now. And uh, this is you know, in thanks to the many research participants, both here in Hawaii and abroad everywhere, that have donated their time and their body to science so that we can advance the field of medicine 
And at our center, there are several active trials in diabetes that are go- going on right now. We can't mention specific names, but um, they are testing new medications for diabetes. So some of them are within the classes that are of classes of diabetes medications that are already on the market, but the newer ones have modified the medication somehow to have maybe less side effect or a longer duration of action or sure, something that's been once changed a day exactly. instead of like five times a day or something. Right. Okay. So how would somebody find out about the trials? Like if you have diabetes, sometimes I'll see in the paper on Sunday, if you have diabetes and you're on a medicine, call us, we might be able to help you. So how would someone find out about what trials are out there to know if they would even be a candidate to participate? Because I know that when we talk about trials, sometimes it, it, it's a great way to get someone to show up regularly, participate, watch their diet, start checking their sugar. When you become part of a science project, you really do have this opportunity to get more education and really be committed to taking better care of yourself. So Mm -hmm. it gives you some more resources. So there's reasons why, but how would someone figure out what trials are out there and if if they're a candidate? So we can't list the specific trials, but if you go to our website, eastwestmedicalresearch.com, then there is information, contact information about how to reach us. Our clinic number is um, 531-6886, and you can call, and we can then talk to you um, about the, the different trials that are available and see if you might be eligible for a trial. Sure, because then they can get your specific information, what medicines you're on, how long you've had diabetes. Mm-hmm. A lot of these trials, you don't necessarily want to have somebody in a trial who has lots of complications from diabetes because maybe they need to be really strict with different types of medicines where you know what it is. You well, might not be a candidate. In other cases, yeah. you might. And in terms of diabetes complications, we have trials that are looking at medications for certain complications of diabetes. For example, if you have nerve damage from diabetes and you have neuropathy, there are trials for that. If you have kidney damage with diabetic nephropathy, then there's trials for the complications of diabetes. So that's the great part of it. All different types of trials for the diabetes, for the complications, variety of different things. And it's funny you say that patients have more resources and uh, do better in the trials. And it is a a lot of diabetes treatment is about self-awareness, being aware of what you're putting into your body, both from the medication standpoint and from the food intake standpoint and from your physical activity. So if you have someone who's in a trial, they actually do tend to have better sugars because the study coordinators stay in really close contact with the patients and uh, really try to get the patients to be more aware of of what they're doing. Sure. And sometimes it's just knowing that you have to report back. Right. I mean, if I tell my friend, let's go exercise tomorrow, I'm more likely to go if my friend says, yes, I'll meet you there. (laughs) If I tell myself, let's go exercise with yourself tomorrow, I might find an easy way out of that one. (laughs) So, you know, it's just that accountability aspect that I think when you know you have to do something, you're going to either be meeting somebody or meeting with a study coordinator or meeting with a physician Mm -hmm. going over your numbers, you're more likely to get more on target with that. Mm -hmm. Now, that's just human nature. Mm -hmm. Some people are so super motivated and that's just awesome for them. Mm -hmm. Yay. And then there's the rest of us. (laughs) And I am going to be in the rest of us category. (laughs) So um, so understood. When you become part of a trial, you have a little bit more accountability. You do more. And you tend to do better overall. Right. But I do want to say in research, in any type of research, 
we we do you know let the patients know that they may not benefit from the treatment and in fact the trial is not designed to help you to get better it's it's designed to determine whether the drug is effective um, and in some cases, we are studying what the mechanism of the disease process is. And so it's really the patient's altruism and really just you know giving back to the science community to allow us to do the research. And they're not necessarily going to benefit from the study. And in some cases, you don't get the active drug and you might get the placebo because we have to determine whether there is a difference in patients who are taking the drug versus not taking the drug to see if there's a difference in the outcome. So we certainly cannot promise, you know, that there is going to be a benefit for the patients and the patients who participate realize that. And they're really doing it out of the kindness of their heart and their time to be able to give their bodies and time to science. And part of their efforts are echoed from what happened in the last 10 or 15 years with all the new medications. People were in trials to determine do those medicines actually work. And those people who put their time and effort into those trials are the reason why we have some of these variety of new mechanisms of medications now. Mm -hmm. So there really is a pay-it-forward aspect. Yes. That's very true. All right, we have a couple of people on the line. We have Carl calling in from Kihei. Welcome to The Body Show, Carl. Aloha. Thanks for uh, taking my call. Thanks Uh, for giving us a holler. Did you feel a little earthquake there? Uh, you know, I didn't. I slept right through it. Did you? Okay, I heard about <laughs> but, uh, that this morning. I was oh. like, kind of wondering. Sorry, Cindy. There was an earthquake in Maui. Okay, this morning. sorry, I was under yeah, a rock. A <laughs> you were under, yeah, yeah. <laughs> literally. What can we um, do for you? But this is a terrific show. I really appreciate uh, the topic, and it speaks to me, of course. Um, and I, I wanted to, um, you know, I started blood sugars testing in the mid three hundreds uh, when I first did it. I, I was never overweight, and it was a big surprise, and there's no family history. So having this whole uh, routine and regimen has been a, a trial. Um, the thing that really surprised me is my own resistance to changing food. Being told I'm not allowed to have sugar has made it 10 times as attractive. Mm-hmm. And I'm surprised at myself of my reaction to that. Um, so I appreciate hearing about accountability. I've been good with exercise, but the food stuff has just been really hard. It's a whole lot more chopping and a whole lot more chewing um, is what it seems to be for for diet. And um, I just want to put it out there that if anybody else is struggling with that, um, uh, the accountability around the food might really help me. And uh, I appreciate the, the talk about the trials because that would be probably a good way for me to commit to doing a better job of that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, um, having diabetes is hard work. I mean, essentially, your organ is not working and your organ systems is not working. Imagine if you had to sit there and have a bulb and pump your heart every 60 to 100 beats per minute. And if you had to run, you have to pump it harder. And if you're sleeping, you pump it slower. But 24 hours a day, you're working to pump your heart. I mean, that sounds extreme, but that's what you have to do in diabetes because if your organs are not working at 100%, you taking your medications, you reaching your hands into the bottle, taking your medications, you eating your food, preparing your food, putting it into your body, you're, you're replacing the function of an organ. And our organs are really smart. I mean, it was doing its job before you had diabetes. And when you have diabetes, it's... It, 
it is life-changing because you really have to make a lot of lifestyle changes for the rest of your life. And it is hard work, and I completely hear you on that. And for you to be aware of that is the first big step, and I think you're on your way. You just have to keep going <laughs> at it and, you know, Thanks find... Fine. Cheerleading it helps. So I appreciate <laughs> yeah. all the comments. So I look forward to hearing what other people say. Thank you. Thank you. All right, Carl. Thanks for calling in and sharing your, your difficulties because you are not alone. You know, there's a lot of folks, as soon as I say don't eat chocolate, mm, everything looks like a chocolate bar. <laughs> so, you know, it really is it really is a whole lifestyle change you have mm-hmm. to make. All right, let's hear from Helene from Eva Beach. Helene, welcome to The Body Show. Welcome. <laughs> So, uh, thanks for taking this call. I'm a diabetic. Uh, I'm 69 years old, and I've had diabetes I think, since about 1998. Uh, my hemoglobin A1Cs are 5.9. Wow, great job. Good work. Yes, yeah, so they've been 5.9 for a while. About four years ago, they were 6.3. The problem is, is that when I hit 69 years old, the universe dumped a whole load on me, and I now have pain in my hands. Um, I have a trigger thumb. I have uh, what appears to be some sort of arthritic pain on the other hand in the index finger and the kind of tightness, a feeling of tightness in, in the other fingers. So I'm wondering whether I have a neuropathy. Is there anything I can do for this? I have no problems with my feet and everything else is fine. My eyes, my kidneys, my internal organs seem to be okay as per my uh, blood test. So I was concerned about the arthritis or the issue that I'm having some problems with my hand as well as dementia for those with diabetes. Yeah. All right, Helene, that's some really good points. And we're getting a little feedback, so we're going to answer your question while you're offline. Dr. Powell, how would you know if you have diabetic neuropathy? Yeah. So the first sensation actually is nothing. You can have neuropathy and not know it. That's why you need to go to your doctor and we hey, need to test you. You're depressing me, Dr. Powell. I'm sorry. Okay. I can have sorry neuropathy and not even yeah. know it. Mm-hmm. Oh, great. My liver will do weird things. This is just a great show. Anyway, um, so tell yeah. me. So if you don't know it, then when do you start to feel the symptoms? Because I thought neuropathy was like the tingliness that happens in your hands, usually in your feet as well. I'm thinking Helene has arthritis of her hands. That's right. That's the, what it sounds more that's like. That's probably mm-hmm. more of the issue, and there are some great things to treat that. But because... Because she's been awesome with these low A1Cs, mm-hmm. 59 mm-hmm. 6.3%. Good for you, Helene. So how would somebody get diagnosed with diabetic neuropathy? So often it's in the feet more than the hands. And when you go to the, the doctor, they can test whether you can feel vibration um, with a, a, an instrument called a tuning fork. And then they should be pricking your foot with this little this little thin piece of uh, filament, this little stick, to see if you can feel that, to see if you can feel a very small prick on your foot, on each foot, throughout the this whole bottom of the, the surface of your foot, and then to see if you can feel vibration and move your, your toes around to see if you can sense joint position. So I can't tell you that how many times the patient has had no symptoms of neuropathy, but I'll detect that they cannot sense vibration very well. And those are the first signs that the nerve is not functioning 100%. And so when some patients don't get the, they don't realize that they have a loss of sensation there. Because they lost it. They don't notice yeah, it. Yeah, they don't notice it. It went away. Yes. And and um, 
the the pain that people have with neuropathy that can occur, but not in everyone. So you might not realize it until you have a foot ulcer or in some really severe cases. I recently had a patient who had lost her leg, and that was the first time that she knew that she had neuropathy. So go get checked. From, yeah, right. You know, go get checked. And if you have no sensation, you know you have a problem. But if, you, if you're if you not sure, go see your doctor, get a foot exam. You know, for Helene, this sounds more arthritic in the hands. But if you were to have diabetic neuropathy, you might not know it. Go see your doctor. They mm-hmm. can test you. That's Easy right. tests to figure it out. Yes. All right. We've got time for one last caller, Brett. I'm going to ask you to be speedy and quick, Brett, from Kaimuki. Yes, I will. Thank Fabulous. you so much. Hi. Great show. With respect to cortisol being the carpe diem hormone, how does black coffee affect the um, it, the liver secreting sugars, both AM and PM, because I'm a slave to my espresso machine? <laughs> and that would be for pre-diabetics and clinically diagnosed. And secondly, are there demographics about type A personalities being more or less susceptible to diabetes? Thank you so much. Great show. All right. Thank you, Brad. And there better not be demographic <laughs> statistics because I don't know who's type A. Maybe mm, me. All right. So let's go first. Cortisol, black coffee. Can can Brett stick with his espresso? He loves it. He didn't say he put sugar in it. I'm going to presume he does not. So, yes. Yeah, so presuming that you are not taking sugar, a ton of sugar with the coffee, uh, there's actually been reasonable evidence that drinking coffee, black coffee, that uh, it actually that it actually prevents or delays the onset of diabetes. So, so the opposite Brett, effect. You're on. <laughs> Drink your coffee. Love your espresso. I'm not talking about your blood pressure. We're just talking sugar. So it could actually help him. It could possibly help. Yes. All but right. If you already have diabetes and you're adding sugar, then that's not a good but idea. But if you have no sugar to your black coffee, it should not be fine. so bad. Yeah. Are Type A people in trouble? Um. I'm not as familiar about that research. Uh, I'm going to be saying uh, I'm familiar, and the answer is yes, but not just for sugars, for heart attacks and strokes and stress-related blood pressure increases, and somehow I might know these things. Hmm. (laughs) All right. So we're all in trouble if we're type A, Brett, but, you know, we can manage it. We can learn. We can get better at it. Dr. Powell, I just want to thank you for sharing your expertise with us today. We need to have you on again. We didn't even cover a whole bunch of stuff, but clearly there's there's public information that we need to get out there, and people are motivated and interested to listen. Yes, thank you so much for having me on the show. Absolutely, and the phone number, if people want to know about clinical trials, 531-6886. Yes. Okay, I wrote it down. All right, thanks again. If you want to hear this show again, you can click on our podcast, whypublicradio.org. Follow the links to The Body Show. You can also find us on Facebook. Our engineer today is a duo. We have David Chong and Rob Carlisle, our executive producer, Beth Ann Kozlovich. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you next week on Monday, right here on The Body Show. Woo!